Good evening, everybody. How are you today? Good. You know what? No one ever asked me that. I'm doing well. Thank you. I'm very excited for tonight's message. You see, this morning we unpacked this attribute of God that's something, to be honest, it's something that's easy to overlook. It's not fun, nor is it awesome for us to realize about ourselves that we have a sin problem, that we have an issue like Pharaoh of making ourselves the God of our own lives. And in doing so, we remove any need to have a relationship with the God in the process. And like we saw depicted for us tonight in the film, this is a problem. It's a problem because God is loving, and my hope tonight is to give you just a glimpse of how loving this God is that we're singing songs to and learning about the work of his hands, things that he spoke into existence. But in order for us to understand and to feel the weight of God's goodness, we have to wrestle with the sinful, dead, and separated state that we come to the table with. But there's a choice to be had. Like our camp director Jeb said earlier, God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. That's the hope of God. And he gives us an invitation. In fact, the invitation he gives us is maybe the greatest exchange in the history of exchanges. In exchange for our sinful, separated state, God gives us new life. In exchange for our death, he gives us resurrection. It's a choice that everyone who hears the message that we're going to jump into this evening is going to be forced to determine what they'll do with, with said news. When my wife and I were in the process of adopting sister, our youngest child, she had regular visitations with some family members during her time in foster care. And maybe you yourself were adopted or maybe your family has been in foster care. It's some of the hardest things I've ever done in my entire life. Could I, could I borrow your backpack real quick? What's your name? Georgia. Georgia, thank you so much. It looks heavy. Oh my gosh, this thing's heavy. What's in here? She's got bricks. You see, one of the things that we would do as sister is we would take her to uh, the visitation center for her to have visit with family that she was no longer going to be entrusted to throughout the course of this process. And because visitation was something that was so emotionally hard on her, my wife had this brilliant idea. We bought her a special backpack. And in that backpack, we would put all of her favorite things. We would put a stuffed animal, we would pack a lunch. She was still young enough to need a diaper, we'd put a bottle or a juice cup in there, maybe a change of clothes in case she got dirty. And we'd put that backpack on her shoulders and as we drove up to the visitation center, she would grab her backpack and she would get out of the car and we would walk her in and we would say goodbye for four hours twice a week. But a day came. A day came on July 13th, 2018, where sister no longer needed the backpack because she no longer needed to go to visitation. You see, God opened up this miraculous door for my wife and I to become her parents, to adopt her. And here's, here's one of my favorite parts of that. Not only is she now my daughter, she has a new name, like she has a family, she has hope, she has promise. God rescued her from darkness and, and just some of the worst things humans can do to other people. 
But what, what adoption also meant was that she no longer needed the backpack. And so what I decided to do as a parent was, you know, it's kind of sentimental. If you're a parent, maybe you understand, like, it was hard, it represented a hard time, but it was like, I just can't, I can't just throw that away. Like, what do I do with this? And so I found this shelf in my garage, and I put the backpack up on the shelf, and I did what most adults do with things they don't want to handle. I said, I'll take care of it later, right? Like, in there, we put taxes and all kinds of things. I'll handle that another day. And I forgot about it. I forgot about the backpack until one day I was cleaning out the garage. And as I was cleaning out the garage, the kids were just playing on their bikes and skateboards and throwing baseballs around in the driveway. And I opened up this cabinet and I see the bright, colorful backpack that was a representation of a harder time for our family. And about the time I'm staring up at it, just flooded with nostalgia and emotion, but mostly just thankfulness to God at how far he'd gotten us through this journey I hear a little voice behind me. The little voice said, there's my backpack, I've been looking for that. I'm like, oh no. And so as we're sitting there talking about the backpack, I pull it down off the shelf and I hand it to her. And as she holds it in her hands, I can see her mind going to, what could this new backpack be repurposed for? Maybe it could be for sleepovers, maybe it could be for school, maybe it could be filled with sand at the park. Like, opportunities with Maylee are endless. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if she filled it with leaves one day just because she's awesome like that. And as she reached for the backpack, I I thought, maybe it's time we break up with the baggage. Maybe it's time, instead of hiding it in the closet, maybe we pull it out and we say goodbye and we thank God for where we are now, but we don't need this baggage anymore in our lives. And as a parent, I'm thinking this could be a teachable moment. And so I kind of rehearsed this speech on the fly and I go, listen, sis, here's the deal. We don't need this backpack anymore. She goes, but it's mine. And I go, well, kind of. I mean, I bought it. So like, what's really yours as a kid? You know what I mean? Like, what's really yours? And only the parents are laughing. Uh, Those are my toys. I'm not going to take your backpack, Georgia. Don't worry. And so we set the backpack down in the garage and we're kind of looking at it and I'm having this dialogue with a, at the time, five and a half year old about who really owns the backpack. And I reminded her of her story, I reminded her of her new name, I reminded her of her place and presence in our lives and in this home and I said, that backpack represents a time where we were questioning, where we were wondering, where we were waiting. That backpack got you through some hard things. That backpack got you to where you are now, but guess what? We don't need the backpack anymore. And after about 15 minutes of round and round conversation with a five and a half year old, we agreed that it would be time to get rid of the backpack in exchange for some frozen yogurt. And I thought to myself, that's a pretty fair trade. Like we can get rid of the backpack, we'll get frozen yogurt all as well. And so we did just that. Here you go, Georgia, thank you so much for letting me borrow that. Why do I share that story? I share that story because that backpack is not unlike the sin in our lives. You see, most of us have sin in our lives if we haven't yet given our faith and our hearts to Jesus. And that sin is a representation of a time in our lives where we were sinful, where we were separated, where where, where like Ephesians this morning that we read in Ephesians says, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That backpack represented an old way of life but I wanna live in this new way of life. I think for a lot of us here today, 
A lot of you go to Christian schools. A lot of you are raised in Christian homes. But tonight I want to ask you a very serious and straightforward question. Have you made that exchange yet? Now, for the next 20 or so minutes, I don't want to talk to people who, like, you know that you've given your faith to Jesus. Maybe you've been baptized. You prayed a prayer with your parents. There's a moment in your life that you can look back on and go, this was the moment where I gave my life to God. I thank God for you. You're my family. But it's highly possible in a room this size that there's another portion of people who haven't yet made that decision. And those are exactly who I'd like to talk about tonight. And so as we dive into it, here's what I'd like to do. I would like to pray one more time. And as I do, we're going to jump right into Hebrews 9 upon the conclusion of my prayer. So pray with me. God, we thank you that you're our loving Heavenly Father. That your desire from the foundations of the earth is to have an intimate relationship with each and every single soul on this earth. And God, even though we sinned against you, even though we ourselves are, are guilty in light of your holiness and your goodness, you still provided a way for us. There's times like tonight where I just can't quite understand that truth. I know me, and you know me better, that you still offered a way for me to love you and to be loved by you. So tonight, God, I lift up any soul in this room, a student, maybe a counselor, a teacher, maybe even a camp staff member who has not yet made that decision to hand their lives over to you. I pray like the late, great Charles Spurgeon said that you would sick the hounds of heaven on our souls tonight so that our minds and hearts may be illuminated to the truth of who you are, the truth of the gospel, the truth of a God who resurrects things that are dead in the same way he himself was resurrected. Open our minds. We love you so much. Amen. So we pick up the story of Moses and Exodus at an interesting time. And to be honest, it's, it's a part of the story that I wrestle with. It's a part of the story that's hard to comprehend. You see, outside of understanding God's justice and God's wrath upon sinners, what we saw depicted comes straight out of the book of Exodus, where a series of plagues is poured out on the Egyptians to soften the heart of Pharaoh and to open up his mind to the fact that he himself, although the single most powerful ruler on earth at that time in human history, is not God. And these, these plagues had a progression to them. These plagues had a compounding nature. That is to say, it started with frogs and locusts, and it ended with the death of the firstborn son of every Egyptian family, every family, rather, that did not paint the blood of an unblemished sacrifice on their doorposts. And if you're like me, you might be watching that going, how on earth is this okay? Here, here's what's at play here. We are coming face to face in the scriptures with the character and nature of the God of the universe. And what we do as humans when we face something that we can't quite fathom, that we can't quite understand, is we try to put it in as small and manageable of a box as our brains will allow us to comprehend so that we can pick it up and we can carry it with us. My friends, this God that I'm speaking of fits in no box. In fact, this God that I'm speaking of, the psalmist says that he holds the spans of the ever-expanding galaxy in the palm of his hand. The scriptures tell us that he knows when you rise, that he knows when you sit, and he can discern your thoughts from afar. That's freaky. I know my thoughts, 
and God can discern them, and yet amidst God discerning my thoughts and knowing my actions, he still paved a way for me to have that sinful, separated state replaced with a loving relationship with him. In fact, the the book of Hebrews would say this about God's relationship and attitude towards sin. In Hebrews chapter 9, it tells us, starting at verse 19, it says, when Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop. That was like a bush that existed in Egypt during that time. And he sprinkled the scroll and all the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law, here's the part I want you to pay really close attention to. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You see, God facing this, this impossible decision to awaken the heart of Pharaoh made a choice. And in doing so, he provided a merciful way for the Israelites to not have to feel the weight of his wrath and the weight of his glory and holiness on display towards the Egyptians. And he said, all you've got to do, this is, by the way, uh, what's known as Passover. It's still celebrated today by Jewish people and, and oftentimes Christian communities as well. And this Passover event is a moment that reminds our souls that amidst God being merciful, and amidst God being just, and amidst God punishing sin, he provides a way for us to come out from under it and to have that sinful, separated, dead state replaced with the love and care of his son, Jesus. This is, this is good news. This is the great news. And in fact, if we were to continue reading in the book of Ephesians, where we were this morning, we left off, if you remember, at verse three, but I would like to, uh, I'd like to take us a little further into that book because it has some incredible things to say for us. He says this in Ephesians two, I'll remind us of what we read this morning. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Remember, dead means separated. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We had a sin issue before we gave our lives to Jesus. One Christmas, my mother-in-law, who's just the queen of dollar store gifts, like I think in her mind, it's quantity over quality. So my kids will go to her house and it's just moving boxes full of the cheapest break after using them one-time toys. But kids don't care. They just want all the presents in the world. So they're ripping them open. My daughter received a glow stick and it had a little yarn around it so you can hang it around your neck. I'm not sure if it was for like spelunking or like warding off Dracula. Like I don't know what the purpose of this glow stick was because it looked kind of freaky, but boy, she didn't care either because she put it on and she's walking around the house like Iron Man, just chest glowing bright for everyone to see. And it came time for her to go to bed. And because the glow stick had a piece of yarn around it, I said, hey, let's not sleep with the glow stick around our neck. That sounds kind of dangerous. And she goes, okay, no problem. That was strangely simple. Okay, no problem. And so I tuck the kids in. We have a ritual every night. We pray, we get a hug, we get a kiss. 
walk out, move on to the next kid. I got four kids. This is like a 40-minute process that happens. Again, that was for the parents. And so, and so I get done, and I have this little nagging thing that's like, you know what? That glow stick exchange was way too simple. So I'm going to go back in. I'm going to make sure she doesn't have the glow stick on. And I walk into her room, and her blanket's pulled up to her chin. First sign. The second thing was the, the glow stick was not only around her neck, but she had twisted it, so it got kind of tight up here. And then she tucked it under her little footy pajamas. But what she didn't realize was that I could see through her pajamas, through the blanket, the faint glow of this glow stick. And so I come in and I go, hey, you sleeping? She goes, no. Mm-mm. Hey, you wouldn't, you wouldn't happen to have that glow stick on you, would you? Oh, no, no, no. We talked about this. No glow stick. I said, okay, well, sis, do you mind telling me where the glow stick is? And she goes, I, I don't know. I just don't know. I'm like, okay, all right. Is it possible that maybe, maybe you got it to use the restroom or to like take your socks off? Like, I'm not really sure, but is it possible you got up and you put the glow stick on and you didn't maybe remember that you did and it's like on you right now? And she goes, no, I don't, no, that doesn't sound familiar at all. And at this point, I'm like getting mad. Like, I'm like, oh, this glow stick, I'm about to crack it open and turn this place into a rave as I discipline this child that's lying to my face right now. And so I can like feel my blood boiling and I can see her like kind of realizing like my questions are very specific. Like, is it possible you twisted the glow stick around your neck and you're hiding it from me? And she's like, no. And so I finally reach a boiling point. I put my hand on the blanket and I pull it back and I go, hey, Tony Stark, why is your chest glowing? And she goes, oh, there's the glow stick. Like she thought I couldn't see the glow stick glowing through the layers of blanket and pajamas that she had on. Here's why I share that story. Our sinfulness works the exact same way with God. We do everything in our power to cover it up. And we do everything in our power as we interact with other humans to go, I'm good, I'm perfect, check out my TikTok feed. It is awesome. Life is good. Top of my class, playing sports, instruments, whatever. We will do anything and everything we can to make life look perfect. But here's what you've got to know. God has your number. He knows. God knows. Not only does God know, but he sees. We're getting squirrely over here. Not only does God know you, but God sees you. And not only does God know you and see you, but God loves you. I think it's entirely possible in a room of almost 400 people, for you to have not heard these words in your life before, did you know that God loves you? Did you know that God, although we are sinful and separated, has provided us a way to be in a loving relationship with him? Back back to Ephesians, it says this. It says in verse four, but because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, this means God has a wealth of mercy and he's generous with it. God loves to share this mercy with people because again, we're talking about a God who desires that none should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. This God who's rich in mercy has made us, Ephesians said, alive together with Christ. 
This word alive has implications or it's implied that, that there's a resurrection power associated with God's love. That when God's involved, nothing and no one is too far gone. That when God's involved, there's hope. That when God's involved, there's peace. And when God's involved, there's life. Oh man, if that doesn't make your soul do a somersault, I want you to think for a second that you, you know yourself better than anybody, that you are loved by the cosmic creator of the universe. That's what this verse is telling us. It says, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive together with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. Even when we were dead, God provided a way. Here's what that does for us. Pay close attention to this. That little verse right there completely transforms the narrative. Because what we tend to do is we go through life striving for and attempting at every possible twist and turn to achieve perfection so as to somehow please God. Right, like I go to church, I'm on the student worship team. God, I go to a Christian school. How could you not love me for that? And we'll do whatever we can and whatever it takes for us to please God. But God goes, oh, you can't. I'm holy. I'm righteous and perfect. In fact, if there was something you could do to achieve perfection, I'd still have my son pre him having to go down to earth, live as one of you, become one of you, be crucified and resurrected. Like God remedied the problem by putting his own flesh on a cross to show us the depths of his love and mercy for us. You don't achieve perfection, you receive Jesus's perfection because of what Jesus did on the cross. You don't receive it, I'm sorry, you don't achieve it, you receive it. Look at what Paul says. He says, for it is by grace that you have been saved. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raises us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus. Big thoughts. Let's break them down. First, this invitation of God's love into your life not only takes away the guilt and shame of your sin, but it tells us that, that, that we've received every heavenly blessing in Christ Jesus, that we've been seated with him in the heavenly realms. Do you know how significant and important you are to God? He doesn't just provide a way for you to be saved. I think sometimes as Christians, I'm in a rabbit trail and try not to get in trouble. I think sometimes as Christians, we make heaven the point. Like, like we think that like, all right, I'm gonna pray this prayer so I don't go to the bad place and receive the wrath of God when I die. Can I just tell you that heaven, the afterlife, is something that, that's like, it's like dessert after a fancy meal. The real meat and potatoes of what God offers us is new life today. In Mark chapter one, verse 13, Jesus comes on the scene and he says, repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is here. He doesn't say repent and believe so if your heart stops beating one day, you go to the good place and not the bad place. No, Jesus invites us into his presence here and now today. I would say it this way. If you miss God's presence, you miss the point. The point of the gospel isn't just heaven. The point of the gospel is that we receive the newness of life, living life in the way that it was meant to be all the way back in the garden, in the beginning pages of scripture. I hope in my passion I'm not losing you because I asked you a question at the beginning of tonight's message. What I asked you was, 
Have you made the decision at some point in your life to put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and to receive that free gift of grace? If not, I have a little bit more to say. Because he also uses this word. Look at verse 8. He says, for it is by grace. For it is by grace. For it is by grace that you have been saved. This word grace implies a free gift. Again, destroying the notion that, that forgiveness of our sins is something that could be achieved. Rather, it's something we receive through God's good grace. It's something that's offered freely to us. It's something that cost Jesus his entire life. It's something that not only cost Jesus his life, but, but the Bible teaches us in the book of Matthew, chapter 25, 26, and 27, that Jesus is, is arrested at the hands of Roman soldiers, that he's whipped, that he's tortured, ultimately crucified. And while he hangs on that cross, he has a little more love to pour out to the people on his left and on his right, and he prays for them. And he prays for the people who put him there, saying, God, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then the Bible teaches something interesting. It tells us this in Matthew 27, that at the right time, Jesus breathed his last breath and offered up his spirit. Remember the verse we started with in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, for without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. In the same way, the Israelites, like we saw on screen tonight, offered up a calf without blemish as a sacrifice and painted the doorposts of their homes with blood. Jesus becomes that sacrificial calf or that sacrificial lamb for us. Meaning, we don't have to die the death that we deserve. We don't have to experience the separation that we deserve because Jesus did so on our behalf. And the Bible teaches that they took Jesus down off of the cross and a man named Joseph of Arimathea, someone who would fulfill yet another one of the over 330 Old Testament prophecies talking about the coming Jesus and, and what he would do. Joseph of Arimathea had a tomb because he was a wealthy man. And he said, hey, you can put Jesus in my tomb. And so the soldiers did just that. They wrapped Jesus in linen as was the customs of their time for a Jewish burial. They put him in the tomb and it tells us that three days later, something interesting happened. Three days later, three of Jesus' female disciples walked to the tomb to pay their respects to their friend, to their family member, and to their rabbi. And as they walked up, they saw something really strange. As they walked up to the tomb, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. And they peeked their head in the tomb, and not only was the tomb empty, but before Jesus left, it says that he folded up his linens and put them neatly in the corner. Don't even tell me you can't make your bed if Jesus, upon resurrection, folds up his clothes and then ascends to be with the Father. Like, that's crazy, right? Not the point, just, again, my mind works weird. Well, what does this resurrection have to do with us? This, by the way, is what we celebrate at Easter, isn't it? Like, this is why Easter is the most hopeful of holidays for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus. The, the reason this is the most hopeful is because the resurrection means that dead things don't stay dead. The resurrection means that, that, that people who are sinful and dead and separated from God no longer have to experience that because Jesus proved that he has the power to make dead things alive again. And so after our conversation this morning about God's wrath and sin and the effects of sin on our souls, separating us from the Father, I have the best possible news to tell you. You don't have to remain separated. You don't have to remain separated from God. In fact, Romans chapter 10, 
tells us exactly, precisely what we have to do to receive this gift. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says that if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This transaction is one that only requires you to put your faith in it. This is why John 3.16 is one of the most famous verses in all the Bible. Even people who aren't Christians know what John 3.16 is. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, eternal life. Gosh, the, the exchange that God has on the table for each and every single soul in this room tonight is not only beautiful but it's filled with hope. It's an exchange that says if you believe yourself to be sinful in light of God's holiness and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that is that this God that that we've been learning about through all kinds of ways this week has the ability to make dead things alive again, you will be saved. That's the greatest news ever told. And what do you get saved to? You get saved from being sinful and separated, and you get saved to being a family member of God. You get saved to a position of heavenly authority, as Ephesians says, where you get to be seated with him in the heavenly realms. The book of Acts would tell us that upon upon the receiving of this message, upon putting your faith in it, you're filled with God's spirit. And at that moment, you become what the scriptures call a disciple. That is a learner, a follower of Jesus. And let me just remind you that nowhere in this message does it say that when you put your faith in God, you have to be perfect. In fact, we can't. We're still mortal. We're still sinful at times. We're still separated. But that's not our identity. Our identity becomes God's perfection. And in doing so, Philippians tells us that that, that we are being transformed more and more and more from this day until the day we die into the likeness and image of Jesus. And then upon death, we're restored with God no longer dealing with the sadness of this world, but get to live on into eternity with the hope and light and beauty of God's character. So here's my question for you. Can you think of a time in your life where you made the decision to believe in God's saving power? Can you think of a time in your life where you admitted that in light of who God is, you are sinful and separated, and you told God, I believe, and invited him into your life. I would like to extend an invitation to you, but I just want to repeat one more time. If you would call yourself a Christian right now, if there's a moment in your life where you made this exchange, this isn't for you. But if you realize that you've never prayed this prayer, if you realize that you've never made a decision to follow God with your life, the door is wide open. And Paul tells us in Romans that all that is necessary for us to make that exchange is to confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. Would you pray with me? God, I can remember, like yesterday, 18 years old, here at Hume Lake, hearing this message. It was a message I'd heard before. It was a message I'd played with that day I heard it, it was like you spoke just to me in a room full of people. It was a day where I was highly aware of my sin and even more acutely aware of your love, your grace, and your kindness. 
And so God, today I pray for any soul in this room, be it a student, be it an adult, be it a camp staff, be it someone just walking in the woods and heard someone yelling about backpacks and they came in here and got to hear the greatest news ever told. Lord, I pray for anyone in here that does not yet have a relationship with you, that you would move in their hearts right now, that you would help them to become aware of their need for you, and that not just, not just that they need you, but that you've provided an invitation, a way for us to receive you through confessing that you are Lord and believing in our heart that God raised you from the dead. And so God, here in this moment, I, I pray for anyone wrestling with that. I pray that just in a second here, you would move in their hearts in such a way that would make them want to respond to this good news. God, for the, the people in this room who have made that decision, we thank you for it. God, I'm thankful for my own salvation and the salvation of others. We make up the family of God that is the church. And so God, I pray in just a moment that we would get to see that family grow through your finished work on the cross. So here's what I'd like to do before I say amen to this prayer. I'm going to count to three. And if this decision is one that you'd like to make here tonight for the first time, and we can have a conversation later this week about maybe the guilt and repentance we feel as Christians, but tonight, just for those of you who want to make this decision for the first time, I'm going to count to three. And if this is a message that you'd like to receive, you'd like to give your life to God, I want you to stand. And as you stand, I want you to say the words, I believe. Now, there's going to be temptation here. I know we're still praying, and so it's okay. But there's going to be temptation here. When you see your best friend stand, you're going to want to stand too. Or when you see someone stand and people clap for them, let's hold those applause for a second here. And we're just hoping, God, that you move in this moment. This isn't for attention. This isn't for clapping. This is because you know your soul is in need of saving. And there's an invitation on the table right now for you to exchange your sinful, separated state for the abundant life that God has for you. So on the count of three, if you would like to put your faith in Jesus for the first time, I want you to stand and say, I believe. Here we go. One, two, three. I see you. Stay standing. I see you. Awesome. Look up here at me. Look up here at me. This isn't for anything else happening in the room tonight. You just made the single most important decision of your entire life. What you're doing in standing and saying, I believe, is you're affirming the gospel to be true, that you're in need of saving, and you're receiving the love and the acceptance of the Father, and in this moment, you've joined my family, and I want to say thank you, God, hallelujah. We're so proud of you guys. Now, before you sit down, don't sit down. I want to, I want to share something with you that I wish someone had shared with me when I made this decision. You're in God's family now. And God has a way for you to live. It's a path. It's a relationship called discipleship. This is where the Spirit of God forms and molds us to become more and more like Jesus the longer we live. And the way that we participate in that plan of God is to get plugged into a church. And so in a second here, I'm going to dismiss every person in this room except for those who are standing, and I would love for you to talk with your counselors about why you stood, the decision you're making, and what it looks like going home to begin following after God. Sound good?
Let's pray one more time a prayer of thankfulness. If you're around someone who's standing or, or you're not, extend a hand, put a hand on them, and let's pray them into the family of God because what we saw tonight is nothing short of a miraculous and heavenly miracle before our eyes. God, we thank you. God, we thank you for the souls who have put their faith in you for the first time. God, we thank you for the, the boys and girls, for the men and women who have stood and courageously said, I believe that I'm in need of saving, and God, I believe that you raised your son Jesus from the dead, and I want that same resurrection. And so with this day, Tuesday, October 19th, 2021, be the start of a journey that transforms and marks their lives forever. Would you bring leaders into their lives, counselors, people to guide them on the path of learning and growing what it means, as what it means to be one of your followers as a disciple. God, I pray that they would share this message of good news with, with anyone that they build a relationship with. This is the hope. God, this is the only hope we have. And I thank you for getting to witness new life right before my very eyes tonight. We love you and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.